0: what's up everyone this is the heart guy media podcast i am your host jesse hs and today we are going to be talking about one of my favorite directors of all time west craven truly you know as we've said we've not at this point you know we've talked about you know mainly the big four a lot when it comes to directors we've talked uh a little bit of john carpenter Um, an episode on the review of his show, his musical tour, which, uh, myself and friends have attended, um the review, and we're going to kind of talk John Carpenter a little bit, that episode's coming up, we've done, uh, the George Romero episode was our very first episode, and it was just me kind of discussing what I think George's impact it has been, what it's meant to all of his fans, uh, and the kind of impact that he made, um, and then Toby Hooper, you know, both George and Toby passed this year, we did, uh, a Toby Hooper episode with, John Angle, and we're going to be doing this one with John Angle because John actually has an interesting Wes Craven story. Um, and uh, Wes is near and dear to you know our love for film, uh, obviously directing some of the most memorables uh, for us. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Last House on the Left, Shocker, New Nightmare. Uh, just, there's, hills have eyes. I mean, there's, there's endless amounts of films, uh, that we're going to get into. That's going to be really fun to kind of pay tribute to Wes, because Wes, I mean, 69, he died at 69 of, uh, you know, a brain tumor that he really didn't, uh, discuss with anybody. He didn't let anybody know that that, that he was that ill or anything. Um, and he kind of died suddenly and no one really knew he was sick. So it kind of hit. It hit pretty hard not knowing that he was going to, you know... One day you wake up and Wes Craven's dead. <clears throat> and you don't know these people personally. Uh, they do have an impact on your life. They do, you know... When they've made films that you've grown up with and learned life from, so to speak... it uh, It does make an impact, especially once they're gone. So it's definitely something that's, I don't know, it's, it's, it was strange when Wes died, uh, I think we are all in shock, all of our friends, just because we, you don't ever think you're gonna get to that point where, you know, the option of having another Wes Craven film wasn't there, uh, because it would never not been an option before, so, but we're gonna try to keep it a little bit upbeat and just talk about the imprint that he left and, and truly uh you know so much to talk about with him. Uh but anyway, I hope everyone had a very nice Thanksgiving. Uh I know I did. I went out on Black Friday, shopped a little bit. Uh Thursday night, got some movies and uh some other goodies. So that was uh that was really awesome to uh getting on some deals and not getting into fist fights with people so that's always uh that's always something that's nice to escape the uh the black friday shopping with not getting into any fights with anyone um but we are going to uh get john on the horn and uh yeah we're gonna dive in and get some west craven talk done hey what's up brother
1: hey can you hear me
0: i can hear you loud and clear
1: I'm here, man. So folding, folding laundry like any cool twenty nine year old on a Sunday. <laughs>
0: there you go. Now, uh, how was your Thanksgiving?
1: It was. It was nice. It was pretty quiet. Aaliyah was with her dad, and uh, so Bree and I just stayed, stayed in. Um, you know, Bree cooked for us, but we had to work the next day. Did you have to work the next day too? Right? Sure did. Yeah, so we didn't want to, we didn't want to venture far, so, yeah, so we just stayed in and had a quiet dinner. How about you, though, dude?
0: Yeah, it was nice, relaxing, went and did some Black Friday shopping.
1: Hey, let me see that poster behind you.
0: Right there.
1: Oh, that's, that's sweet, I love that. Yeah.
0: So, we're talking Wes.
1: You're damn right.
0: So... First of all, what was the first... What's the first West movie you saw?
1: Wait a second, are we recording right now?
0: Oh yeah, we're live as shit.
1: Oh, so that that, that whole spiel about Thanksgiving, is it gonna be on here?
0: Oh yeah.
1: Oh, well thanks a lot, asshole. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: anyway, the question, first Craven movie I ever saw, um, was definitely 100% Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but the second one probably right around the same time, video rental store era, was uh, People Under the Stairs.
0: Yeah. Which, uh, now it's... an amazing film. Now, he's got such... I mean, we've obviously, we've talked Romero, we've talked a little bit of Carpenter, we've talked Toby. Now, those are the big four, for sure, is Romero, Hooper, Craven, Carpenter.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, and then you get into your... No disrespect to them, but, you know, the, the tier after that, probably like uh, Joe Dante, you know, Larry Cohen, th- those. But uh, I definitely think that those are the big four of our, uh, certainly of our generation. I know other generations, probably our parents, you know, um, had Universal Monsters and things. And I'm sure there were different directors like Hitchcock and William Castle. And, you know, but for us, certainly those are the big four. That's there's no doubt.
0: Now, I guess we'll go, I I mean, we're obviously huge Nightmare on Elm Street fans, the whole franchise, but thinking about what a phenomena the the entire uh, series became, you know, it all stems from the original, obviously. That original idea that Wes had, which is well documented, where, you know, the idea of, like... Freddie Krueger came from, or was a bum in the street that like was staring at him, and he kind of had that 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 Krueger,
1: yeah, that sinister look. Yeah, to, um, and...
0: the the fact that the guy was a like a bum or or a hobo or whatever, and clearly took a uh, took took uh, a lot of interest and fun in in scaring someone. Yeah, but yeah, um, but you know when you talk about Wes, you know I guess we'll start. We'll start at like you know, at the very beginning, one of his breakout well, something that's interesting about him that I love and he's such a it's such a he, he's such a unique filmmaker in the sense that he never saw anything other than Disney movies until he was a senior in college. Is that true? Yeah, he I- never <laughs> See, I learn
1: new stuff all the time. I never, I, I, I was never aware of that.
0: Yeah, he was. He grew up in obviously like a very like uh, religious household. So he's, he said, uh, you know, seeing any going to the movie was uh, was considered sinful unless they were Disney movies, which he said, you know, I saw pretty much like one movie a year, whatever Disney put out. Like that's what I saw, and he didn't see any other film until he was uh, a senior in college.
1: Yeah, that that's absolutely amazing because you see the majority of these people, you hear stories that you know we talked to Carpenter recently, sort of grew up in the cinema. You know, just uh, just watched everything they possibly could. So it's pretty fascinating that
0: that he might had become
1: that a ex- successful director with so little exposure to cinema.
0: Yeah, it almost it almost makes you think that all those years those formative years where he could have been exposed to all that stuff it was simply all bottled up and then it didn't get exp- it didn't it wasn't he wasn't able to exploit or explore that and and launch it onto a canvas which obviously was you know his filmmaking canvas until he was you know in his mid early to mid 20s so it, you almost want to think that because he didn't see those films or get exposed to that kind of culture or any kind of uh, filmmaking culture outside of animated Disney films that, that once he did, he had the ability to actually and was old enough to make movies. So all that youthfulness, I feel like he always kept and he was able to kind of paint paint on all of his film canvases you know, he just bottled all that up for years. So when it exploded, it exploded hard with like Last House on the Left. Obviously, the one of the most extreme movies up until that point, and probably still one of the most extreme, brutal movies of all time.
1: Oh, for sure. And I think that that um, that film seemed to launch the whole. Um, well, I don't know necessarily. I don't know the order, but it, that was, uh, you know in the vein of, you know, I spit on your grave, but that now, you don't really hear Wes getting a lot of credit for it, but, you know, that sort of rape-revenge film, I feel like one of the earliest examples of that was Last House on the Left, probably one of the more uh, prolific examples of it. So, you know, he definitely gets credited for creating Freddy Krueger, but um, obviously, but he he did some other things, a lot of other things that that probably influenced a lot of people that he doesn't necessarily get credited for. And, uh, that, that last house on the left, like you said, still to this day, um, one of the most disturbing, emotional horror films you'll ever see, you know, particularly, uh, you know, you become a parent and it's just like, oh, you just, it's just something about it. You know, the whole thing just disturbs you.
0: Yeah. And obviously, in something that we obviously know too, but for anybody else, I love the little you know. You can't say homage because it this was pre this is predating dating the Freddy Krueger character, but I love that David Hass's character's name is Krug in Last House on the Left, which obviously has got to be you know harken harkens uh, back to that childhood bully that Wes claims that you know, Freddy Krueger was named after.
1: Yeah, and, and of, all, uh, of all of Craven's films, and obviously he had a, a very extensive uh, filmography, even though he he didn't necessarily live the longest of lives, you know, it's just not like Roman Polanski's age or anything, but um, of all the things, uh, all, all the monsters he created, I still think Krug is probably one of the scariest because he's not supernatural. Um, you know, he's not, he's not hiding behind a mask. He's just this disgusting villainist, criminal rapist. That's just out in the open, almost really sort of flaunting it. You know, when he finds out, Hey, I just raped and murdered your daughter. And then he ends up at their, their house. It, there's just something so real about him as a character. I think that he's, to me, he's one of the scariest, uh villains of all of craven's films
0: oh he's one heinous cocksucker for sure and that and david Hess portrayed him so like perfectly
1: uh he, he really re- did he's just you know Hess was known for um I, I think that's probably one of his earlier i'm not really sure i know david Hess had a long uh history he was a singer songwriter i i I think he even composed the music for last house on the left but i knew he did some stuff for elvis and things it's just uh but but he sort of made a career out of those gritty grimy roles and i think last house on the left sort of launched that and then you saw him you know last house in the park or what have you and uh just sort of embraced that that role that began with krug
0: and uh David Hess passed away in 20, I think 2011 or something like that. I think he was in his mid-70s, so, uh, R.I.P. David Hess, uh, kind of underrated when you think about, like, the impact that Last House on the Left had made and, you know, how, what a pivotal role he played and how important that character was to that story, you know, having that the ult- ultimate fucking villain, um... You know, and like you said, that that more or less launched that whole subgenre of horror films that I think Craven doesn't get credited for. And obviously, if if Cra- with Craven not being fully credited, uh, you know, David Hess uh, doesn't either for portraying that role as well as he did.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that uh, I think even though we uh, you know we revere those four directors as the big four. Um, and I know on the Toby episode, we talk about how in some ways he was the forgotten fourth member of that group. I, I feel probably Carpenter gets the most love of the big four. And in a big reason for that is he worked exclusively really within the, uh, the studio system, all his films after, you know, his early work, you know, people recognized, Oh man, this guy's making, making mucho money on his movies. So uh, they s- snatched him up, you know, Avco Embassy and what have you. But Craven, I feel like, uh, Craven, Romero, a-, a lot of guys that just made a lot of great films that didn't get as m- much exposure and as uh, much recognition as they deserve, I think, largely because they just weren't, typically they weren't huge, big budget releases. But all the more impressive that Wes was able to make such good films um, on such shoestring budgets.
0: And uh, yeah, and it really is, you know, this film even obviously uh, predates uh, The Exorcist too, which this film was one of those films that shocked audiences where you were hearing about people friggin' having panic attacks and things while seeing the film and stuff and, you know, just keep telling yourself it's only a movie type thing, you know, that that was like the, that was the freight, the trade, the, what do you call it, the tagline, right?
1: Yeah. Absolutely,
0: and honey, uh, so, I'll be right out. Um, so to think yeah, that, that that even you know, you and you think *Exorcist* gets like all the credit for like being the first like theatrical like uh like scare fest like that where it just like was shocking audiences. Wes was doing that even before you know the *Exorcist* was uh, was doing it. Yeah, and you,
1: and you have to think too, Wes. Uh, you know, on that note i know obviously we've got a lot to cover as far as his filmography but also another note on uh, last house on the left in a lot of ways um um, that ultimately gave us friday the 13th because sean cunningham was um you know somebody that was had partnered up with craven early on uh they worked together and steve miner as well what's that
0: steve miner as well
1: yeah absolutely Very much the case, yep, and that's, so you look at a lot of, you know, Friday the 13th, and then, you know, the early Friday the 13th entries, and Halloween H20, and look at all these great films that these guys did, and it's, a lot of these guys got their start early on, you know, Cunningham working on Last House on the Left, and then, um, because of that collaboration, and and what that was able to achieve, um, you know, what was it Paramount had you know, made Friday the Thirteenth, and and then be, Cunningham becomes a, a front runner to direct that, and the rest is history. So, uh, even something like that is uh, often overlooked. But that was that was Craven's influence.
0: Yeah, and then you know a few years later, you have another film that was quite shocking: The Hills Have Eyes, legendary film.
1: Yeah, one definitely one of my favorite Craven films. Um, I know a lot of people probably feel similarly, but. Uh, j- just so great because y- they they didn't cheap out. It wasn't uh, let's th- you know bring in a freaking uh, truckload of sand onto a set somewhere and just make it seem like you know d- light it real dark and pretend they're up in the the freaking desert in the mountains. But you know they didn't do that. It was very very real. It was shot on location. It was hotter than shit out in the desert. They all felt like they were dying out there and it's just you can feel that that feeling of isolation and and how you know you're in this ravine almost surrounding by surrounded by these hills if you will and just that feeling of being watched um being helpless you know your vehicle is disabled and you know you're getting picked off it's it's just such an amazing film
0: yeah and you have uh you know, obviously, Michael Berryman just looks like you couldn't have cast that part any better.
1: Yeah, no, he's he's creepy as hell. Um, again, I don't know chronologically, but I think, was it before that, or, you know, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Michael Berryman just has that, it, it, like you said, just perfectly cast. He's just it is very creepy looking you know and he sort of capitalized on his own look to sort of make a career out of it but certainly wouldn't have had a career without last house on the left yeah um and i know craven cast him craven was very loyal to you know people that he was close with cast him in a couple other films i know one being deadly blessing there with brooke shields um yep but yeah just definitely, definitely perfectly cast as one of the, the main villains there.
0: Yeah, and that was, you know, obviously Dee Wallace, that was uh, a huge role for her, that, you know, that put her in the in the runnings at that point, after that, you know, as uh, someone who was looked at that could handle that kind of role for this type of genre film, so that definitely, you know, she threw her name in the hat with that performance. <laughs> Oh, for sure, absolutely, and that—that, um,
1: that, like you said, in a lot of ways, sort of launched her becoming a scream queen, and you know, did so many awesome things after that. You know, freaking critters and Cujo and the howling and so on and so forth. But yeah, I think she uh, she owes a debt of gratitude to to Wes for casting her um, because you know, she's still working today, she's still pumping stuff out, you know, Lords of Salem, she's, you know, tight with Rob Zombie, so you'd have to think that that all stems from Craven.
0: And, you know, you talk about these cannibal movies, too, The Hills Have Eyes, you know, predates, like, all the the cannibal movie craze, like, you know, like, the wrong turns of the world, and, uh... What I don't even know what the fuck else is like. You know what I mean? Those I mean, like you and
1: I aren't huge cannibal fans, but you're right. That's it, it, it's the guy's setting himself up, all these different genres that he's these subgenres of horror that he explored before most people did. It was sort of uncharted territory. And I know you know the Italians; those guys did those you know freaking Holocaust films and shit. But um, I think there's. It, there's a classiness, if that makes sense, to, to Wes's films. He doesn't rely on overt violence. Um
0: There was I always don't. a even even in the most brutal of scenes, there was always an intellect and he was never he was never insulting to his audience, even in those brutal, like, you know you know, it was never as as <sighs> like primal as like, you know, the Hills Have Eyes could be. It was never stupid.
1: A- absolutely, and that's I wish that more directors today embrace that, but I also think that's a reflection of you know audiences and their expectations and their attention spans and what have you. I don't think, um, I think people demand all the blood and guts and violence. But his early stuff, like you said, there there's a there's so much intelligence to it. I think that goes back to the fact that that Wes was. Uh, a, a really educated guy. He was a college professor in upstate New York, you know. So he, he was very eloquent, well spoken. If you ever listen to his commentary tracks, you, you can tell that he's passionate about what he did. And so, um, I definitely think there's an intelligence to his films that he doesn't get credit for and that, Uh, a lot of other people never incorporated into their films. Like you said, it's just, there's just, it's so smart. He wrote all these films and um, they're just amazing to this day.
0: So we'll kind of glaze over until we hit like, you know, the highlighted points in his life. But, uh, you know, as far as his filmography goes, but two films I didn't really see a lot um, growing up. And I honestly didn't see Summer of Fear until you told me about it. Um but summer of fear in seventy eight and then we had deadly blessing in eighty one What are your thoughts on summer of fear
1: uh so summer of fear, from my understanding, I believe that was that that was written by Duncan, who also wrote um I know what you did last summer, so somebody that was pretty prolific uh in, in that horror novelization industry they 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 took that work and i think craven had a pretty decent relationship with linda blair yeah i think part of him uh, i don't i'm just speculating i don't know if he ever came out and said this but you know she certainly had her struggles being typecast after the exorcist her career struggled she was starring in a lot of low-budget horror films and you know whatever the case may be but so from my understanding he cast her in that that was a made for tv movie if i'm not mistaken yeah and and i actually really enjoy it i think it's i think it's a lot of fun honestly i know they just it just got some love recently they just released it on blu-ray i think but um i think that's a that's a really fun movie it's again it's it's exploring something yeah it had, in the vein of like uh invasion of the body snatchers you have somebody and you know there's witchcraft elements and stuff but they're expecting one girl to come and somebody else like changeling style shows up and um yeah i think that movie's great i really enjoy it
0: yeah uh, so thoughts on uh deadly blessing
1: uh deadly blessing it is no I was thinking uh, i got it confused deadly that's deadly friend with christy yeah Swanson. yeah Dead, De- yeah deadly blessing that the one with sort of the the Amish folks yep and Cher- um, sharon
0: stones in it
1: yeah that that one too that's another one that's um that i think is is one of his probably lesser seen films but again a a lot of fun shot on location you know you can tell that it's you know, some I don't know where it was at, but it looks like some you know old farm, and um, yeah, that that was, that was definitely a fun one. I don't, I, I think that's one that's a little atypical of him. That's not, it doesn't feel necessarily like a West Craven film in, in a lot of respects, but
0: yeah, I agree. Uh,
1: definitely, uh, definitely a lot of fun. Not a whole lot of violence. It, it's sort of a, more of like a mystery. I feel like obviously there's you know some other elements. Ernest Borgnine's in it from. You know, he did a million things, but I just saw him recently in *Escape from New York*. Reminded me, um, uh, did, he was great in it. So he definitely had some some very talented actors and actresses in that
0: film. Like, uh, and up to this point, uh, you know, how crazy is it to think? Like, obviously, he he had precursed uh, some of these subgenres and stuff, and touched on this stuff before these subgenres before they of this of horror before they became. So popular, but then you think up into this point, up until the early 80s, he'd already worked with people who would become go on to have like great careers. You think about obviously Last House and Left, Sean Cunningham, like went on to create and you know help curate the Friday the 13th, uh, you know, spectacle. Then you have, you know, he's worked with Linda Blair, who was, like, you know, still, like, it's only, like, five or so years removed from The Exorcist, so that was still hot, and she was, like, you know, so known for that. And then Deadly Blessing, working with Sharon Stone, Sharon Stone obviously going on to have, like, quite a career, and then Dee Wallace obviously being such a genre darling as well. So it seems like all these people were getting in on the on the West Craven train uh, early on, whether it be by uh, design or not.
1: Exactly, and and there's a lot. Once you start delving into it, there's a lot of people that really benefited career-wise from being cast in a, in a Craven film early on. Um, even Robert Englund, you know, yeah, he'd done a few things. He'd done that television series V, I think. Um, you know, he was in Toby Hooper's uh, "Eaten Alive," but you know, Robert Englund doesn't have a career right now, as far as I'm concerned, without Wes Craven. He he made an entire career. Oh,
0: absolutely. At, at,
1: that Kruger character, and then you know every other role he ever got was in direct relation mm-hmm. to people saying, "Oh, wow, he's super scary as you know Freddy Krueger." So there, there really is no Robert Englund, you know, having a five mile long autograph line at um, these conventions we go to if it's not for um, for Wes Craven.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, yeah, you're right. He had a huge influence on. The horror industry, and there's a lot of people whose careers either he revitalized, or you know, because even even later on, sort of with with beginning with New Nightmare and Scream, and you know, re- reintroducing certain people to the mainstream, or whether outright creating stars like Jamie Kennedy and you know some of these other young folks, Matthew Lillard, and just creating stars out of virtual unknowns, the guy is just. You know when when you get cast in a Craven film, it's like cha-ching! This is this is good stuff, you
0: know. Oh yeah! Now Swamp next up Swamp Thing. Uh this is a movie and and a whole you know the whole lure and the whole character of you know like Alec Holland and you know Swamp Thing. Like I always loved it. It's something I grew up with. Um, this film, like the animated series, the sci-fi like original series, um all those i always loved the swamp thing character and uh you know obviously adrian barbeau has you know she was obviously married and has a kid with carp who plays in his band um but and then she obviously had worked with romero on um creep show and she'd worked with uh craven on, on swamp thing and swamp thing is is such a fun movie and it's what are your thoughts on swamp thing
1: well you know to touch on it like you just mentioned adrian barbeau to me is the ultimate scream queen you know you see certain people get a lot of love like jamie lee Curtis, yada and uh, um, not to shit on what they accomplished but uh, adrian barbeau like you said you're talking one of the few actresses who you know Married to John Carpenter, was in numerous of his films. You know, I just watched her recently in Someone's Watching Me, which she made, which Carpenter made before Halloween, and then just watched her in Escape from New York. And, you know, obviously The Fog probably being her her biggest carp role. You, you've got her working in, in Romero's movie. She was in Two Evil Eyes that he did. She was in Creepshow, like you said. Um, and and here she is working with craven on on freaking swamp things so uh, what what masterful casting because there's not a lot of people that were as beautiful as adrian barbeau that could also give you that uh, that genuine believability that hey she's super kick-ass and she can she can destroy you you know <laughs> so she's just that was a that was an awesome casting choice and i just think that that film's a lot of fun um that's one of those where it's it's not scary in the least. It's just an action film, but it's it's just it's great. Those two little kids were freaking hilarious. I don't remember their character names, but they were great. Such a good casting choice. Um, everything about it. I think Ray Wise, you know, he was he, he was good. In that. Um, yeah Even they, they freaking even had Harry Manfrondini doing the score, which was. Awesome, and then you know with the the comic book sort of transitions, a la you know creep show. I just think that 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 movie is so much fun. Um, And again, it's it's not even something I I don't think most people even associate that with Wes Craven. Yeah, they almost Uh, forget. People probably don't even know he directed
0: it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we got to talk about the the DVD controversy because I know that you had finally hunted me down a copy of the version that is the unedited version that's still rated PG that was initially released that they had pulled because Adrian Barbeau obviously had a topless scene.
1: It, yeah, I don't I don't know how that came to be, but for whatever reason, MGM released it, um, released an uncut, unedited version of it, which in, in, when I say uncut and unedited, I, don't, I really don't think there were, I, I'm not even sure, I don't think there was any other scenes in it other than that. that
0: no, one. I think it was I just that.
1: Yeah, it wasn't like a whole different version, but it was enough to to piss people off um, because, you know, people think it's unique to 2017 that people are, you know, getting pissed off about everything. And No, it's been going on for ages. People were advocating against, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night. They were advocating against uh, this swamp thing when it came out. Oh, this can't be peed. This can't be parental guidance. Freaking Adrian Barbo. Topless in here. So (laughs) from my understanding, MGM recalled all those um, all those DVDs and, and. D- you know, destroyed the ones that they could actually get their hands on, but they were already on store shelves at that point. So, so, people already bought them, and it's it's a little late then. You can't go to people's houses and 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 steal back their movies. So, you know, video, certain video rental stores already had it. You know, I found myself a copy at, at an FYE ages ago, and then I found a copy for you actually up when I was visiting the Black Christmas House in Toronto. There was an old school video rental store, um, which now we think of as that's such a dinosaur. They actually. Just last year, I was there like uh, about a year ago. Uh, a video rental store was going out of business, selling off their stock, and sure as shit, they had that version of Swamp Thing, which has you know a distinct cover, so I knew it was that one. And yeah, I picked you that up. And you know, it's, there are copies floating around. People that managed to snag them before MGM recalled them and destroyed them. But yeah, then they re-released it, and even Scream Factory's recent re-releases is, is the. That edited version without the,
0: without any nudity in it. Yeah. Uh. So we'll uh, we'll cruise along to right before Elm Street. So uh, another movie you introduced me to that was kind of that's deep in Wes's catalog. Another TV movie, Invitation to Hell.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that one. uh, (laughs) I don't remember her name, but the woman there that is 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 widely known as a as um, a soap opera actress you know i remember growing up and seeing her when my mom was watching soap operas you know i think she's made a, a crowd of that uh, whatever her name is her being the character <laughs> i think that one's actually kind of h- hilarious honestly in disrespect to craven because i i like it i think it's a lot of fun but it's it, it really is more of a comedy than anything because the whole premise is uh <laughs> sort of ludicrous i it has to do with you know a country club where they're you know transforming people and you know at the spa or whatever it's it's just complete craziness but that's another one that i think is just a lot of just a lot of fun it's a good time
0: yeah it's not like uh again it's not like one of his like standout features that's like broke barriers or anything like that, but, you know, it's definitely an entertaining and, uh, fun entry in his, uh, filmography.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's hard to, you know, knock it out of the park every single time, and and when you, uh, the more success you have, the higher expectations people have for you, uh, when you're releasing stuff, you know, they think every freaking movie you're gonna put out is gonna be, um, you know, is gonna be something as seminal as, uh, you know a last house on the left or a hills have eyes and it just doesn't always work out that way so um i think craven just had a lot of fun with his career made his own type of movies and um you know you have to respect him for that
0: oh absolutely so what do you think of hills have the hills have eyes too because i i liked it obviously it's not the first one but you know it was uh wasn't anything to write home about i i didn't think
1: yeah, I think my my view of that one was definitely influenced by Craven himself because before I even saw it, I remember reading um, because that one wasn't you know for me that wasn't something that was as readily available as some of the others. A lot of those, a lot of the films we've already mentioned, I didn't see until much later, like within the last you know ten years. Uh, for sure, you know, 5 to 10 years whereas some of the stuff was readily available, you know, I remember being a kid and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and people, you know uh, people under the stairs things like that, the, those were available right at the video rental store a lot of these Deadly Blessing and um, you know, that that one in particular uh, I never saw it anywhere so it wasn't, it wasn't until much later on that I even saw Hills Have Eyes 2, I finally snagged a copy somewhere. And I just remember before I even watched it, Craven saying, ah, yeah, it's a piece of shit. And he was basically disowning it and and just came right out and said, hey, listen, I was, you know, I need some freaking money. So I, (laughs) you know, that was, that was one that, uh, it could easily a sequel could easily be made. It could be low budget. I just brought some BMXers out into the desert and stuff. So I went in thinking it was going to be shitty, just based on what he himself said about it. And then, so I think that influenced me a little bit. But yeah, I'm not I'm not too hot on it. I watch it occasionally. Um, you know, they brought back Michael Berryman, who for all accounts was dead in the in the original film. You know, the dog killed him, but then they bring him back, and because um, he's sort of an iconic character and then you have the the brother from the first one flashing back and which seemed to be that was one of the more annoying (laughs) filming techniques that they used to do i remember it was like you know with the friday the 13th films like here's the last 10 minutes of the last entry it's like no i don't this fucking annoying you know yeah they're just padding it but yeah i thought that was it was kind of lame honestly but
0: so I mean, we could go one of two eggs right now. Do you want to save Nightmare on Elm Street and then cup it together with you know that one, and then and and New Nightmare, and we could save that towards the end, and we could just run through the films that kind of popped up in between those two. Yeah, sure. Let's do it that way. Because obviously, we're gonna have the most to say about his obviously his 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 famous monster. For sure. So, uh, did Chiller, TV movie, that was okay. I, I didn't see that until recently, honestly, the last five or so years. Deadly Friend, though, was, uh, I think it's actually one of his more underrated films. Uh, obviously you have Christy Swanson. Um, it's such a unique concept. Uh, the writers, I think, uh... I can't remember the woman's name who wrote on it, but I do remember Bruce Joel Rubin. Uh, but it, that is such a fun movie. You have uh, you have the mom mom from the Goonies in it, and Ramsey. Oh yeah,
1: with one of the greatest death scenes ever, which is completely awesome and hilarious. Oh yeah, with the freaking like the mop pool and the basketball spinning on it or whatever. That was great.
0: And you had the yeah, you had the yeah. Zach Galligan rip-off kid, the the one kid, I can't think of his name.
1: Yeah, I know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, but, yeah, that's such a, it's such a interesting idea for a film, and the fact that, like, to think it's a Wes Craven film, like I said, Wes never really had, like, Wes had a style, but then at the same time, Wes didn't have a style, because he, he could stretch himself so, like to to like uh yeah on such different levels where you can't pinpoint like his style because he was so well versed in doing different kinds of films.
1: Yeah, you're right. He was you never could pinpoint what he was going to do next. You know, some of his stuff was genuinely disturbing and very dark and sinister like uh you know, uh, A Last House on the Left or People Under the Stairs like I'm sure we'll get to and and a lot of it was it was much more lighthearted and comedic. Um, like the like Invitation to Hell and um, and Deadly Friend was sort of in between. It certainly wasn't a comedy, but it was it was it was definitely a fun uh, a fun entry. Christy Swanson was awesome in it. Um, I'm assuming that was post uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but you know that that was just, no. that was a fun. And I know you mentioned Chiller. Um, but real brief to t- briefly to touch on that. That's one of my all-time favorites, Chiller. Um, just because it was a made-for-TV movie again, and it was it was just something that people don't associate with him. But it had Jill Shulman in it, Michael Beck from uh, you know who was Swan and the Warriors. That was a fun one, and it's just it's just cool that the guy had so many fun films in his filmography that people are still discovering today just because they've. You know, weren't so widely available at one point, but now in the DVD age and the Blu-ray age, you have companies like Vinegar Syndrome and shit uh, releasing films that are just super obscure. and um, So so people are getting exposed to, to things now in this digital age that they didn't before.
0: Yeah. No, no, Deadly Friend was actually pre-Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
1: So again, that may be, you know, I, I would say obviously Buffy is, is, a, is a much more a well-recognized film of hers and who knows maybe the producers of that film the director of that film cast her based on her performance in deadly friend because she does have a wide range you know where she goes from you know some spoilers here but when you know she goes from she's the living girl to then she's the dead girl and it's there's there's definitely a a range of emotions she has to play and and maybe they saw that and said hey this girl could be good for buffy the vampire slayer and maybe that's sort of responsible for launching her career who can say you know so
0: maybe it was maybe it was the 18 second scene in ferris bueller's day off where she said his best friend's brother's sister's boyfriend's uh blah 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 talking about (laughs) ferris bueller being sick literally her only scene in there but i always remember that
1: it could be, man. It could be. Who the hell knows?
0: <laughs> now, did you see any of Wes's Twilight Zone when, when Twilight Zone came back? Did you see any of the episodes he did? Because he did five. And I, I knew he did some Twilight Zone episodes, but I didn't know he did five episodes.
1: Well, I can tell you I've seen them all now. You know, I, I, I honestly had never um, seen them previously. I've seen them all now. And uh, his episodes tend to be a lot of fun. Um that, that that whole Twilight Zone reboot was a lot of fun because it was in the eighties. I know they've done it a couple times now since the you know the Rod Strilling show. They rebooted it again, I think, you know, in the nineties or something. But the eighties one was a lot of fun because it was a lot of genre directors that. That us fans know and love now Like Tommy Lee You can watch some of his episodes Freaking Tommy Lee Wallace Is directing episodes And you get to see a lot of faces Like, you know, Bradley Gregg Eyeball Chambers And, you know, the kid from Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors You see a lot of those people Pop up in those Twilight Zone episodes So it's just like Wow, this is fun These are It kind of feels like You know, abbreviated versions Of of the films that You know, we grew up loving In the 80s It's a lot of familiar faces And so Uh, Craven had some good ones, and I'm trying to think, um, I would have to look real quick to see, uh, to see see which ones, but I remember one, um, where everyone starts speaking in jumbled up words, and then, um, the one guy feels like, okay, what's happening to the world, but they're looking at him like he's the crazy one, because he's the only one who's speaking. English anymore Yeah Um just, just a lot of like Really random shit Um But A lot of fun have, have you gotten a chance To see any of those yet?
0: I'm not gonna lie I haven't seen any of them Well the good news is For um
1: For anybody who's interested They did just, For a while they were out of print And they cost a fortune Um And they're not anymore They've been recently re-released So uh yeah, you can you can
0: get these for you can get those. There's only a couple seasons of it, um, but you can you can get them for next to nothing. No shit. Yeah. So moving on from that, we're obviously going to come back to, for the Nightmare on Elm Street um, talk, but you know, then you have Serpent in the Rainbow, kind of like an odd film for him as well, um, which didn't doesn't seem odd after you know once. Uh, you people under the stairs comes out a few years later but serpent the rainbow uh you know you're talking about voodoo and black magic and you know you know like traditional like you know zombie in like you know the mysticism of like voodooism and stuff uh it's really uh it's really an interesting film that he decided to like go and make as well it was such a different for the time for sure
1: yeah, and you know, it, like you said, I think one of the things that really sets that film apart is that you know, thanks to George Romero and his, you know his contributions to the horror genre, we've we've obviously seen a million gajillion zombie films, if you will. Uh, I that was for me. I'm not saying that it necessarily was the first one, but I can tell you, for me, it was the first traditional zombie film I'd ever seen. You know, not the flesh eating ghouls of of romero's films but actually you know what they defined as a zombie you know like you said with voodooism and and you know the that sort of shit that was going on um i i had never seen anything like that and honestly i had never really been aware of of that that sort of you know that haitian voodooism and how they're you know drugging people and these witch doctors and they're called zombies cause they act like they're dead, but they're still breathing. And I had never freaking heard of any of that. So until, until serpent in the rainbow. So in a, in a lot of ways, I feel like that was sort of, um, that was very innovative in and of itself is tackling that genre from a different angle. You know, the, the zombie, um, uh, the zombie
0: subgenre. Yeah. I actually have an interesting story about Serpent and the Rainbow. So I rented it from a, my local re- video rental store in probably like the mid to late 90s. And, uh, it was after the Good One shut down, which was, uh, Sight and sound, video, and then we had Video King, which there was two Video King locations that I was aware of—one in Chittenango and one or one in Fayetteville and one in Canastota. So obviously, I was located in Canastota. So around this time, I want to say probably like 96, 97, It might even been ninety eight, maybe ninety seven. I don't know, but I remember they raised their prices, and their prices literally doubled. And I remember being so spiteful. At the time, I had Serpent in the Rainbow rent it out or I went and rented it out and it was like double the cost so I was like what the fuck I was like and for some reason the woman that worked there was really mean she was really mean all the time and she at the I think about it now I was probably like 10 11 years old and she was probably like late teens early 20s but she was just like mean and ugly and she (laughs) just just
1: just a miserable a
0: mis a miserable stink, as Stacy Keats would say. <laughs> so I remember going home and I peeled the logo off of the VHS tape and, <laughs> and fucking put it on like a like a one of the VHS tapes I had at home. But I can't even remember what movie it was. It might have even been a blank movie. And I peeled the fucking sticker off the side and put it onto it and returned it and kept *Serpent in the Rainbow*.
1: That's great. <laughs> That is, an, uh, that is awesome. That is hilarious.
0: Yeah, I was really pissed. And I think about it now, it's like, someone probably was so stoked that like, see Serpent of the Rainbow, went and rented it out, like, eight months after I got it, and then they got, like, I don't even know, like, The Dinosaur Show or something.
1: <laughs> They're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> no, that's... And that... I know for, for all of us, that's um, something that we revere so much, is... those experiences at video rental stores because that's where my love for the horror genre began growing up with my grandparents renting renting these movies at these mom and pop video stores particularly for me it was video to roll in the North Utica Shopping Center where I grew up um, that area and yeah just seeing those you know now we you and I see so many DVD covers, or they don't, or Blu-ray covers. They don't even freaking use the original theatrical art. No. Or the original. They, they just put some lame-ass, fucking, uh, uh, you know, something that they just whipped up on the computer. Where it's like, dude, that was used to be pivotal the awesome images like on People Under the Stairs or, you know, the awesome cover art on Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. Those were the reason we freaking even watched these movies, really. Because that's what we picked out based on how awesome the cover art
0: was. Yeah, and they dropped the ball on that during the late, like mid to late 2000s when they were finally putting some of these films out on DVD and you'd get these fucking terrible... Like, not even Photoshop. I don't even know what it what it was. It was one of the fucking... It was some of the worst shit ever. Stuff that wouldn't even make sense with the film and stuff. It would just be, like, a skull. Like, like... Yeah, uh, like. yeah
1: absolutely <laughs> pathetic. Like you said, zero effort being put into it. They, they didn't even care that it was a piece of shit. They're just like, eh, whatever.
0: Get it out, yeah. So...
1: <laughs> Bump it out.
0: One Look, of my... One hilarious. of my... One of my favorite films of his and I feel like he got shit on at the time and I think it still gets a little shit on Shocker. I love Shocker. I think it's an amazing film and obviously there were several films like that were similar uh you know uh obviously the horror show which was you know uh, actually an entry in the house series was uh similar to that as well. But Shocker, you know, Wes has said he's went on to say that like Horace Pinker in the, the Shocker movie was supposed to be, you know, he was uh, he was bitter that he was not getting certain royalties for the Freddy Krueger craze that Bob Shea was kind of cashing in on, and, you know, at this point, 89, they're, at what, they're at part five, and there's obviously probably as big as it's been, the final, the fourth entry in 88 was, like, their biggest one up to that point, and Wes wasn't seeing Dick from these movies, more or less, and he wanted to create his own new Freddy Krueger, uh, yeah. and that was the idea with Horace Pinker. Obviously, that didn't turn out that way. But man, he uh,
1: wanted to, you know, create that. He wanted to create the next franchise. He was sick and fucking tired of looking at the box office numbers of all of New Line's, you know, Bob Shay's Elm Street films, which he felt rightfully felt like, hey, that was my creation. That was my idea and you fuckers are, you know, kind of ripping my idea, and so he said, well, I'll, I'll just freaking create my own killing.
0: Yeah, and again, when we talk about cover art, I remember seeing the cover art, and I remember seeing it, and then obviously putting it together, I was just like, oh shit, like, and obviously on everything that came out from West at that point, or after Nightmare on Elm Street, said you know from the director of Nightmare on Elm Street, and I was like, oh shit, Wes Craven. And seeing that artwork with him on in the chair with the friggin' with the the DOC friggin' outfit on in the electric chair was uh, it was important artwork, and it sold the movie for younger kids that were rolling into video stores, you know, renting these movies out and beginning a craze on certain films and these cult followings based on the cover art.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and 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 again, you know, to, to give credit where credit's due, Mitch Pileggi was great in that role, and he went on to have a pretty successful career. You know, X file—he's still doing the whole X Files thing, and you'd have to imagine, you know, that was one of his biggest roles to date. I, I honestly don't personally know him from anything else other than you know that, so you'd have to think that that role had a—it did play a part in him getting. Um, some of these future roles, like on the X Files, where he's one of the major characters. So, yeah, you're right. That that movie, um, sort of a murder mystery with you know a supernatural twist, but
0: futuristic it, too, with like virtual, kind of like. Touching on like virtual reality and like, you know, obviously like traveling through electronic devices, like electronic devices, TVs, and electrical outlets. And it was, uh, you know, it was like.
1: And a great score, too.
0: Oh, amazing score. Amazing soundtrack. A lot of great, you know, you got dangerous toys on there. And it's. It definitely is you know cuz i think people are probably rolling in thinking it was going to be another nightmare on elm street and it wasn't cuz it's a different kind of film but uh i think now though it is getting its uh, it is getting its due at least for people that are just discovering it or are rediscovering it um so maybe it is getting its due now but i always thought it was great and i thought it was kind of like underappreciated
1: yeah and um i agree i think it's a great film i love it um, have definitely watched it a lot more as I've gotten older. I'm not necessarily sure where... Um, I can definitely understand his thought process and, you know, it's sort of like the, uh, the Night of the Living Dead crew. It's like a way of sort of taking back what they feel is theirs. I understand what uh, what Wes, Wes's idea was. It is a little hard for me to envision that film as a f- franchise, necessarily, because, uh, I, I don't know, I guess I guess you could have Pinker go out and, and Kill people through, continue to kill people Through technology, you know, through, like you said Through the television and, you know, maybe Eventually computers and stuff, but um, I think is I think it worked perfectly As a standalone film, I'm kind of glad that It wasn't made into a franchise, because I think it, it, it serves its purpose in just the one Entry.
0: Oh yeah, definitely um, And You know, moving on to One of the last films we're going to talk about Before we dive into the Nightmare films, and then we'll Dive into his other stuff and of course the the scream franchise we'll we'll talk about that to you know kind of round out our conversation but um people under the stairs this was a film i saw and I, this is a film i didn't rent uh, I actually saw it on hbo i'll never forget it i remember seeing it air after um so every every um every saturday and i think they still do it on hbo they would have a new a new film come out like that was already released in theaters or whatever, and it was typically a year or so after the release of the theatrical release of the film. Uh huh. Now, for whatever reason, I remember I remember this vividly. I remember it. It had to have come out like a week or two prior on HBO. Like it, they had debuted it on HBO, but I remember I was excited because I didn't go to the movies and see Adam's Family. Adam's Family was the new film that hbo was showing like that saturday it was debuting on hbo television uh-huh so i remember staying up as like probably like 8 or 9 o'clock and you know you're talking like you know man we're talking like i'm 5 years old or so or 4 years old like this is one of my it's one of my vivid memories i i literally remember this vividly um uh, and I could be remembering it wrong, but whatever. We're going to roll with it, because I'm just going to write the narrative here if I'm forgetting it. Um, uh, I remember watching Adam's Family and being, like, super stoked or whatever. But I remember, because this movie came out, like, a few weeks ago on HBO, it came on right after Adam's Family. I'm like, people under the stairs. I was just like, when you're, like, a little kid, like, people under the, the people under the stairs. Like, it sells you on, the title sells it on you, like, right there oh absolutely and i remember staying up and watching it and uh and i remember like just being like frightened by it and for some reason i thought like you know one of the guys with the long hair that was the one of the guys under the stairs for some reason i thought it was a guy from wayne's world one of the long-haired guys from wayne's world because wayne's world i had just seen at that point too and i remember thinking that all movies were like correlated somehow so i was just like oh that's the guy from wayne's world he must've died after Wayne's world or whatever. And he's in this movie now, like, cause you're just like nonsensically thinking things when you're a kid. And that, I remember that's what I thought. I thought it was one of the guys from Wayne's world.
1: No, I hear you,
0: but I remember loving this film th- that far back. Um, and it was such a, it, and it's remained, it's, it's, it's maintained. It's, uh, it's, it's luster over the years, and I love it just just as much now as I did when I first saw it, and it was kind of, Wes, Wes always did have his finger on the pulse of, like, you know, newer and, like, youthful things, and he's said that before, like, he doesn't talk, he never learned the lingo of, like, newer kids and stuff, but he said, you know, I think it's important to listen to kids, I remember him saying that, I think of how great that is, um, how about how he always was like evolving and changing with the times and obviously touching on the inner city struggles of like black youth and stuff like this film was tapping into it. Like, so this obviously says something, uh, culturally too, uh, about what was going on in the early nineties.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think that he, he definitely doesn't get acknowledged for some of the social statements he was making. They're more overt. I think in some of, um, you know, like Romero's work, where you know if you're talking Dawn of the Dead, consumerism and things like that. Uh, but Craven, again, very intelligent guy, incorporated a lot of those um, those commentaries, a lot of undertones in his films. And uh, you're right, yeah, touched on um, just the the impoverished inner city folks, and you know with sometimes the drastic measures they'll they'll go to to support themselves and their family. And you know, you have the kid from Sandlot. Um, his name escapes Brian Quentin Adams or what have you. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know him. He he was really great in that film. You got Bing Rames, and to me, that's definitely one of my to this day uh, it will always be one of my top Craven films because, like you, just having seen it early on, the anticipation—it's just—it really is a is a beautifully made film. It's it's genuinely frightening. I I definitely put people under the stairs right there with. Uh, nightmare on elm Street and and uh, with Freddy Krueger, I think that it's just again it's 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 a different type of fear those people seem just seemed then and still do very real to me you know ordinary people you see out on the street you don't think anything of but behind their doors just like the sick twisted stuff that's going on and and it's just man there to me there's nothing more frightening than that like the people that look normal but they're hiding this terrible secret
0: you know yeah and you know the the acting in it is so good you got wendy Roby and everett mcgill who were both you know obviously in twin peaks right around the same time so uh they were really hot at the time as far as like people that were acknowledging their work um but yeah it's uh you know uh, Sean Whalen's like great in there as Roach. Like he's—I don't think he could have cast that role better.
1: That's the only good thing he ever did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in all honesty, um, yeah. Bridget's favorite there. Oh, Whalen no. was great. Um, again, it's just—it's just, it's just a, such a testament. I don't know, in all honesty, what his. I, I'm sure you know. Craven had final say on who was cast, but all his films, there's never. There's very few examples I can think of where it's like, wow, that was a pretty poor choice. Every time you watch a grave, like, man, that person—I can't imagine it with anybody else. And and what a testament, you know? I mean, to have uh, to have people you couldn't imagine anyone else playing that role. That film is so freaking scary uh, to me. I just—I love it to this day. And the fact that one of my favorite parts is the fact that he gets out. And you're like, "Oh
0: man, thank God he escaped." And then he goes back in. Yeah.
1: It's just <laughs> it's just awesome, man. Such a great film.
0: That is like a classic tale too, you know, like a classic Robin Hood type tale where you're stealing from the rich to give to the poor type thing, you know.
1: Exactly. And uh yeah, no, to me that's just one of one of the best. One one of his absolute best. I absolutely adore that film.
0: So, We'll tap. We'll we'll dive right in right now to you know obviously the 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 you know quintessential monster the quintessential horror story of Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street. You know we're gonna trek back to nineteen eighty four here, and obviously Wes was shopping this around, and I, I it, one of the most disturbing parts of the whole idea of the the beginnings of nightmare on elm street is that it stems from an article that west wrote about a kid that was having these nightmares saying like he was afraid he was going to die in his dreams uh and i believe west said that it was uh an article about uh you know uh, an oriental uh child who was you know probably preteens or teens um saying you know i'm someone's trying to kill me in my sleep and the parents finally like you know, discover that, you know, the kid's hiding, like, sleeping pills or whatever. They were trying to give him medicine to get him. And he had, like, a coffee... Ma- he actually had a coffee maker, like, rigged in his room through, like, a... Yeah, yeah. Like, to, to think that it, that actually happened because this kid was so... This kid that Wes never knew or not, no one, you know, that was involved with the idea knew. Um, You know, and finally the parents, like, must have slipped one. mickey their own kid to falling asleep. And then, um you know the kid starts screaming and shaking and they open the door and he falls like dead still and it dies in his sleep
1: yeah if that's not you know if that's not alarming if that's not freaky i don't i don't know what is that's uh, the fact that that was a legitimate story that that was a real person you know that Craven had read about um that that's that's pretty creepy you yeah, know that that whole that whole thing, it's, it's its really where, you know, they talk about, you know, art imitating life, and wow, isn't that it's pretty awful, what happened to this kid?
0: So when you discovered Nightmare on Elm Street, what were your initial thoughts when you first, because obviously it's the first film, your first introduction to Wes as well, so what were your first thoughts upon, you know, finding this movie and the character of Freddy Krueger?
1: Yeah, I thought he was, uh, I, I thought he was the scariest Villain, scariest creature I had ever seen, and again, the things that always scared me, and to this day, really still do, are the things that you know, things that are, are very real and sort of hit home. And I think, whereas I didn't, I didn't fear Jason Voorhees necessarily, because it's like, hey, listen, I'm, uh, I'm never going to Camp Crystal Lake to piss him off, you know what I mean? But when it comes to Nightmare on Elm Street, the thought, it, yeah, granted, it, you know, the it took place his killings took place largely on Elm Street but the thought of well he gets you while you're sleeping and there's there is no escape because we all have to sleep at some point you know even Nancy recognizing and even her friends recognizing hey someone's terrorizing me in my dreams they still couldn't help but fall asleep because it's just <laughs> we just have to sleep as human beings so i think that was what was most frightening to me beyond his look which is absolutely terrifying and you know his mannerisms how beautifully played he was by robert england it's just a thought of well everybody has to sleep so it's is he going to come for you and i mean once once you close your eyes is he going to is he going to invade your sleep
0: yeah i mean it's such a and you know now it's it was something that was obviously never tapped into before like you know someone that a monster that kills you in your sleep so, is it fake? Like, or you know, is it, like, is it... You know, because on the surface, you think, like, oh, well, you know, oh, it's all make-believe. You can only kill you in your dreams. But when you actually die in your dreams, like, you've tapped into the ultimate horror, the ultimate terror, the ultimate, like, you can't escape.
1: Yeah, and that, that is just what is so, um, so frightening about that ca- character, because it, he's just so... Invasive, you know what I mean. He, every time you close your eyes, he's in your bedroom. You know, he's in your bathtub. He's, um, it, it, it's just really, uh, just changed the genre forever. You know, that type of villain. It was coming off the heels of the golden age of the slasher genre, the, the late 70s and early 80s. And most of those films, you know, they, they were reminiscent of a Michael Myers, you know what I mean? Who's who's scary in his own way, but to go from something that had a human form, a Jason Voorhees, a Michael Myers, and, you know, there's even a leather face. It, it was a human, you know what I mean? It may be sort of a, a supernatural human, but it was a human. And then to go to something where it's like, well, 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 Robert Englund, you know, Freddy Krueger, he's dead. The parents of Elm Street, they murdered him. He, you know, burned death. He's gone. He has no physical form anymore. But now he's at his most powerful because he's attacking you when you're most vulnerable, when you're most susceptible while you're sleeping. Uh, to me, it's just to this day, that changed the genre more than anything. It really like I said, all these all these classic slasher films, Curtains, Prom Night, everything, Terror Train, the millions of slasher films that had come out before 1984, had really set a certain tone. It's like a mass killer, and he's invading your home um, while you're sleeping. In a different way, but he's 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 a man or he's a woman. And now, yeah, someone's invading your home, but you know, no no guns are going to protect you, no um, you know alarm systems are going to protect you because it's it's in your dreams
0: and truly the most heinous of crime committers too a child killer uh you know and they never really outwardly come out and say it but you know a child molester so wh- literally one of the most heinous human beings ever is now you know seeking revenge on the children of Elm Street in your dreams. Your mo- the most the most invasive you can possibly be, you know, when you're sleeping.
1: Absolutely, and that, to, to me, there, there's definitely an interesting dynamic to horror films, and I don't know what it says about us as horror fans, but it's funny because it, as time goes on in these series, we tend to, who are people fans of? C- certainly people are fans of Nancy, you know, they like Nancy. I'll tell you right now, you and I can both attest to the fact we've been to these conventions and whatnot. Uh, Heather Langenkamp doesn't have the five-mile-long line. Robert Englund has the five-mile-long line.
0: Exactly. It's like
1: people, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but people are drawn towards the villains more than the good guys, more than the heroines. You know, people, I don't know if people are associating more, but isn't it interesting that you have, and I know it's just a movie, but it, it, to me I've always thought, Okay, you have Robert Englund, and like you said, he's not just a child murderer; he really is a pedophile too. Which you know they kind of, like you said, they they skip around it, um, but that's what he is. And yet, fans sort of idolize the guy, and you know it's like, oh, we're going to be at Robert Englund for Halloween, and um, you know, waiting a, a, a five-mile-long line to meet him and everything. It's he—he he sort of transcended that entire franchise he became that franchise and it is interesting how uh, people tend to associate more with him than they do the, the good guys they cheer for him more
0: i always i always thought that that was interesting too that these you know freddy jason michael myers leatherface all these guys had more fans than the villain or the than the heroes or the you know the protagonists um and i i always thought about it and i think i i understand it to a a degree and i think people side with the villains because it takes the scariness away if you're rooting for the villain if you're on the side of freddy krueger you know you're it takes away the the terror you're not cuz you're not amongst the hunted in your mind you're 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 siding with the guy who is the hunter you're siding with you know you know it, evil and, and it takes that away honestly
1: never I've never thought of it like that but yeah I think that has a lot of legitimacy to it you know it's yeah you're right it's just it becomes less scary <laughs> when you're rooting for the person who uh, it inevitably wins.
0: Yeah, so you know I mean? it's and a if, defense mechanism.
1: It's like, yeah, if you're gonna... If you can't beat them, might as well join them. And so people, you know, know no matter how much they like one of uh, one of the characters, they all end up dead. And that's pretty much universal across the majority of the genres. You know, we all... Uh, it's like, oh, wow, we really like um, you know, Kristen. Well, then her character gets killed in, you know, the Elm Street films or you know, wh- whoever it may be. We really like Nancy. Well, she's dead, too. So, yeah, it's almost, uh, well, you might as well root for the ones that are going to survive. Yeah, yeah that's, I think you're right.
0: And, you know, to think about how well, obviously, this is Johnny Depp's, like, breakout role as well. Um, and you think about all the people that this film kind of helped I mean granted Heather Langenkamp really isn't known for anything other than her role as Nancy Thompson but it had so many it was such perfect casting too with John Saxon so you're bringing in some veteran acting chops in there with that and then you have uh you know Wes just he just had his it was all the alignment of everything, you know. New Line, a company that had been a distributing comp- a distribution company up until that point, uh, more or less, uh, having just a you know what alone in the dark and like uh, uh, not a very wide uh, you know film base so far. And they credit him, you know, still to this day. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street or, or New Line Cinema is the house that Freddie built.
1: Exactly. Um, It's it really jump started um, New Line, which, like you said, was just a little fledgling studio uh, that that really didn't have many hits at that point. Um, You know, like you said, they had you know Alone in the Dark, a few other things, but then you imagine what New Line went on and accomplished. You know, you're you're talking. Uh, um, Lord of the Rings, for crying out loud. You know, one of the biggest film franchises, one of the biggest trilogies, money makers of all time. Peter Jackson becomes an overnight star, although obviously he had done a lot previously. But, you know, New Line Cinema's responsible for that. New Line Cinema, granted, I don't know, you know, how it fared in the box office, but now certainly revered as, you know, I know you and I absolutely love the Turtle films. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that's New Line Cinema. Absolutely. So they... uh, like you said they, they got their
2: start with Elm
1: Street um Bob Shea really credits uh Craven and and his contribution to their company really creating creating New Line Cinema and to this day you see New Line I grant you know it's it's cha- changed hands and you know what have you but people to to this day these they're making big time movies you know so um and that all began with Elm Street
0: yeah, and, you know, West, obviously... The, initially, West was going to be heavily involved with Dream Warriors. Obviously, the return of Nancy and her father um, to the, after the second one. Uh, so, and, you know, it obviously ended up not panning out, and West really didn't have uh, much to do with it.
1: He wrote a treatment for it, right? I think they credited Correct. him as having some of the ideas, but like you said, nothing compared to what originally was planned.
0: Right, so Wes uh, and, and, you know, from that point on I think Wes was just over it and when it became the phenomenon that it did throughout the 80s, I think Wes maybe he wasn't bitter, I think he was more so bitter that he felt uncredited in the creation of it all. But And
1: and, and I think another uh, you know, again, I'm just I'm just hypothesizing, but I think there's a lot of, there's misconceptions in, in the film industry that, oh, and Nightmare on Elm Street, that's, that movie's huge, that guy must be a millionaire. Well, clearly, Wes went on to have a very successful and lucrative career, but I think for a lot of these people, they're not, they don't get rich. They have to continue to make tons of films. You know, I'm telling you right now, you look at George Romero and how successful he was and, and how... how how much of a defining career he had. Well, I'm telling you right now, George Romero was really that wealthy. He's not going to conventions signing autographs for hours and hours and hours. Right. You know, it's just, it's just common sense. So I think the misconception is, is that people, um, people think that these, these directors are incredibly wealthy people. And and they're just, they're not. Particularly early on in their careers, they don't have the leverage to say, hey, listen, I'm not signing over any of these rights. This is my story. I wrote it. I directed it. You know, you're sort of at the mercy of the studios in order to get your films made. So I think there's, you know, a level of resentment when you see New Line blow up into this huge studio, making tons of money on the back of your creation when you're sort of struggling, you know. And it gives you, it tells you, after a Nightmare on Elm Street, right, I believe it was after, right? That he he comes out with the freaking Hills Have Eyes two, and he said it's just because man, I needed money. I didn't have. I ran out of money, <laughs> so it just gives you an idea that he's not he's not freaking rolling in dough. So I think uh, he had every right, just like the the original Night of the Living Dead people being pissed off that well somebody's benefiting off off our hard work, but it's not us.
0: Yeah. And, you know, obviously, after the, what was tentatively, and, and at the time, was going to be the last entry in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, you know, you have Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare, uh, you know, subsequently after that, Wes and Bob, Bob Shea contacts Wes because there was such a clamor still, it, you know, tell Rachel Talalay's entry, the final Friday, Freddy's Dead, left a bad taste in people's mouth as far as, like, what they wanted to see for the last of Freddie, and, you know, Bob Shea contacts Wes, he makes things right with Wes, money-wise, and, uh, you know, rights-wise, uh, and more or less, uh, from from what I've seen in interviews from both of them, Bob cuts him a check, makes things right, and then we have... Which I think is probably his best work in all of his, out of all of his films, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah,
1: New Nightmare was definitely ahead of its time. There's no question that the guy created something that was just too good for 1994, if that makes sense. It was just something that the public, they weren't ready for um they they just they that was before you know this satirical self-aware um genre of horror which basically Craven recreated a couple of years later with Scream anyway uh people people weren't didn't know how to to, to handle it and you had this sort of hybrid of yeah it's a horror film and it's scary but it's it's totally different than anything that had been done previously and it's funny because both you and I and so many others now, we have this, we revere this film, we have such great appreciation for it, but imagine how disappointing it must have been for Wes when, when he finally comes back to the Elm Street franchise and really sort of gets dismissed, gets sort of, you know, people are like, ugh, this sucks, you know, because it wasn't, it wasn't this bloodbath that they'd come to expect, you know, with these all these kills in, the, in a Nightmare on Elm Street film it just had a completely different feel
0: to it. Yeah. And it was, it really was such, and it's still to this day, I think it's ahead of its time, even in 2017. I mean, it's so smart and it's such an interesting way to take the Freddy Krueger character, especially because it's something, you know, that is spawned from an idea of something that actually happened where someone was being felt that they were being attacked in their dreams and they died in their sleep, in their dreams, so the fact that now it, you know, the idea of it is transcended and, you know, it's all like, uh, you know, art imitating reality to the, in reality, like, you know what I mean? It's It's completely... It's, yeah. it's such a unique concept and unique idea. I thought it was executed phenomenally. I thought Heather Langenkamp playing Heather Langenkamp, like Wes Craven playing Wes Craven, Bob Shay playing Bob Shay, Robert England playing Robert England. It's such a f- and like those scenes where where it is it you're 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 cutting into the lure and the reality and what's real and what's not when you have Robert England painting, you know, do, doing this like therapy and like you know, painting, and he's painting the real Freddy, you know, you know, this new Freddy, the, you know, the non-movie Freddy that they really, you know, are all fearing in the movie.
1: Yeah, it's, it is, it's so smart, um, it really is just a very sophisticated horror film. Miko Hughes, obviously, who had previously done one of your favorite films, *Pet Cemetery, known for you know being one of Michelle Tanner's best friends in *Full House*. He was freaking amazing in that film. Oh yeah, for um, his
0: age, that was amazing. uh that was amazing work for someone his age.
1: He, yeah, he really, um, he really is such an underrated little. You know, obviously, does, I don't think he does a whole lot now, but. For then being the age that he was, such an underrated little actor. Uh, but yeah, everything about that film was so far ahead of its time. Um, I think now it's definitely one of those films that has has gained so much appreciation from people. Um, but at the time, definitely not. You know, something that you know people I just don't think thought that highly of at the time.
0: Yeah, which is a shame. But I think now people, the more people I talk to about it. They're like, oh, New Nightmare is is such a such a classic, and it's so it's so fucking good. So I like that it does it does get its respect from people that really understand and, and are you know, fans of what West did there.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it's great that the, that film has finally um, finally got got the respect that it deserves. Um, because like you said, a lot of a lot of times, you know, we've talked about it a lot of times, it takes people dying before anybody even recognizes their worth like Edgar Allan Poe and things, so I'm glad Craven was at least alive for people to start, you know, bringing that and at conventions to have him sign or sending it to him in the mail or, you know, writing him letters about that film because um, like I said, it was shit on initially, but I'm glad it finally garnered the respect that it deserved.
0: Yeah. Uh... I mean, we could talk, uh, and I, one day we will cover all the Nightmare on Elm Streets, but, you know, we could talk for hours on just the, the two, you know, nightmare films that Wes was, you know, the, the full creator on, um, because, you know, it is so pivotal to his, his career, his filmography and everything, but we'll, uh, We'll jump, we'll jump around and then we'll cover the Scream series and, and we'll wrap it up, but we obviously still got a little bit more to talk to, talk about. So your thoughts on Vampire in Brooklyn,
1: 1995. So that, that was actually one that you recommended to me, um, for whatever reason, there was sort of a little gap in time in in Wes's career that I, I had missed out on a few entries. And that was, uh, that was definitely one of them. I had never seen it. You recommended it to me. And uh, I'm, I'm honestly not so much now. You know, ne- with all due respect to Eddie Murphy, I don't really follow his career now. But at one point, I don't think most people would disagree that he was one of the greatest comedians going. You know, oh
0: I'm by a far, huge.
1: Fan. Uh, what's
0: that? Oh, by far, especially you know, I, spawning into you know, the in,
1: uh, with, with those Landis films in particular, uh, trading, trading. Uh, tr- the tra- trading spaces, right, or places? Trading places. Um, trading places. I love coming to America. I love. You're talking, just a great comedian. So that that film, even though it was made in the '90s, still had the feel of old school Eddie Murphy to me. And uh, I-, I thought it was great, and I thought it showed Craven's depth. Um, you know, he was doing something that we had seen with Carpenter. You know, creating comedies as well as, you know, horror films, action films. So I just was hugely impressed by that film. When I first saw it, I was like, what wow, this movie's hilarious.
0: Yeah, it really uh there was a lot of uh there was a lot of great uh comedic uh actors in there too uh when you talk about uh like John Witherspoon like just hilarious in this film like uh who plays the guy it was one of the funniest uh funniest parts of the movie <laughs> when the, the ship that Eddie Murphy is, like, has ridden into the harbor on and the fucking the John Witherspoon's character, like, gets on the ship and he goes, ahoy, motherfucker! <laughs> 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 and I just die laughing. And that guy's got such a great role in this. Yeah, that, you haven't seen
1: the motherfucker. that's definitely a film that if, if you haven't had a chance <laughs> to see, if you're a fan of Eddie Murphy, you're a fan of Wes Craven, you definitely have to see it. You have to own it. It's it's readily available. It's not one of the. It's definitely not one of the lesser seen entries. Um, and you you definitely have to check it out because Craven, certainly known for certain things, not really known for for his his comedic abilities. But man, that film is hilarious.
0: Well, uh, you know what's funny is Wes wanted it to to be a comedy and eddie murphy wanted it to be serious but i know wes had some gripes with it just because eddie murphy had his all of his guys all of his entourage around trying to push their ideas in the film and get certain like friends or whatever in the film so there was like a push and pull between wes and the the murphy entourage that i understand uh but all in all i think That's I,
1: probably why <laughs> that could very well be Why Eddie Murphy's career is nowhere where it used to be, which is because people, you know, nobody wants to deal with that shit. No. You know, no, no direct, freaking directing is, it certainly seems grueling enough as is. Who the hell wants to deal with somebody's annoying entourage uh, trying to hijack your film? It's like, uh, no, I don't know who you are. Take a step back. I got this, you know?
0: Yeah. So, uh, jumping, uh, ahead to the last four, uh, you know non scream related uh movies he did uh you know we're gonna talk about did you see music of the heart honestly i haven't and i believe that's the only craven movie i've never seen that's that musical with meryl streep right yeah i haven't seen it either and meryl streep is a, a pos so i don't care about her
1: yeah i'm i'm 100 percent on board with that i have I really have zero interest in seeing that. I think it's some someday, you know. I may, but the problem is, is you, you know, you and I barely have time to watch the films we love, let alone watch some fucking musical that we don't even have an interest in.
0: Yeah. Um. And uh, I'll jump ahead before we talk about Curse, just because I know we can talk a little bit about Curse. But what would you think of Red Eye? I thought that was another film that it didn't really have. Like I said, Wes doesn't doesn't really have like a pinpointed like staple of what his films read as. But I thought Red Eye was a fun film. It was a different film, and obviously coming out when it did in the mid two thousands, I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, uh, it,
1: agreed. It's it's sort of like an action film a where thriller, you know, suspense, a th- exactly like a thriller. You could imagine. That's the sort of movie like an Alfred Hitchcock would make because you have somebody who all she wants to do is scream out, you know, hey, you know, someone's someone's holding me hostage here, but can't because of the implications. Hey, I'm you know I'm going to kill your family or whatnot. So she's she's being held hostage. To me, that's that's pretty terrifying. Being held hostage by a madman and 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 Killian Murphy, Killian Murphy, however you pronounce his name. Is one of, in my opinion, one of the most underrated actors of our time. I know yeah, he's, now
0: he, he's great.
1: He's known for that. Um, you know, I forget what the name of that series is he's on now that's really popular. Um, but you know, some some movies he's done that I absolutely love. Sunshine, which was a Danny Boyle movie. Twenty eight days later, which was you know another Danny Boyle movie. The guy is the freaking man. Not to mention you know Scarecrow and and, and the Batman
0: yeah Reboot. and he, it was okay. it was a it was a chance for Wes to work with newer actors that were really great like him and like uh Rachel Rachel McAdams like it was cool to see him be to be able to work with these newer actors that you know he hadn't worked with um and uh I thought they both had put on brilliant perform uh two brilliant performances in that movie I thought it was a lot of fun
1: yeah definitely i i think I think the only thing that hurts films like this, and I don't know if you share this sentiment, but the only thing I'll say is that a lot of times when when a film, you know, people talk about a film, it's because it has a lot of replay value and they've seen it a thousand times. The only thing I'll say for for Red Eye that hurts it is that after you've seen it the first time, it's not like you're trying to watch it again like twenty other times. You know what I mean? It's sort I've of
0: honestly seen it. You- I've honestly seen it once.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's probably true of most people because it's, it's hard with with films like that which are dependent upon the suspense and the big reveal and you know how's it gonna turn out because after you've seen it you're sort of like well I know exactly how it's gonna you know play out if there's not like a desire to freaking watch it ten other times so yeah I think that definitely hurts that film to a degree but you're right yeah definitely a, another fun one
0: uh, you know, another film that came out the same year, that there was, it was completely reshot, it was tore apart by the studio, there was fucking 900 problems with it, and I feel, I feel so bad about it, just because I would have loved to have seen how it was originally going to be as cursed, which, the film that it is now isn't bad, I think it's good, especially considering everything that, Wes went through on that one where you know Rick Baker was originally going to do the effects he had done all the like mock-ups and prototypes and had everything good to go and then he pulled out of it because it was a shit fest yeah that's they didn't want to put any money into it and they were limiting Wes they were limiting the makeup department and I know I had showed you the the original werewolf design that Rick Baker had done and it was just uh, astonishing and it's a shame that it wasn't ever put in the film
1: Yeah, I don't know who's directly responsible for trashing that film other than the Weinsteins, which I think, you know, I think they certainly had a role. It was under their banner dimension, I think. Yep. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's pretty disappointing because being written by Kevin Williamson, who obviously, you know, did the Scream franchise and is basically, you know, a very, very smart writer, to, to have him writing it, you have Craven directing, and originally had, you know, Skeet Ulrich attached and whoever else. When you watch it now, it's, you're right, it's still a good movie, but you can't help but think, well, what could, you know, of the potential of what could have been had
0: Craven been given the creative license that he really deserved, you know? Exactly.
1: Um, and like you said, Rick Baker, who who the hell who the hell freaking messes with rick baker's work
0: yeah seriously
1: that what are you an idiot it's like dude you don't create a freaking film full of cgi when you have rick baker on board who's creating you a werewolf yeah and other
0: practical effects yeah and it's uh i know they kept his name on it and he's completely distanced himself from it and you know uh, to think about what it could have been with you know you Corey Feldman in the I believe was the Scott Baio role and then you had Skeet Ulrich as the Joshua Jackson role I think it would have been a much better film uh, but for what we got uh, you know a mid two thousands werewolf movie I thought it was it was very entertaining and great even with all of its flaws
1: absolutely and and you know it, as good as some of the other people could have been. You have to give credit where credit's due. Christina Ricci's a great actress. Phenomenal in the movie. And and Jesse Eisenberg, he's a little nerd, but um, <laughs> you and I both love him in Squid in the Whale, Social Network. So certainly it's not like they replaced him with a bunch of chumps.
0: No, not know, at all.
1: Certainly good actors in there.
0: So, uh... Yeah, like, we we could do a whole podcast on Curse, too, but uh, one of the films I think doesn't get a, enough love, and it was the second-to-last film, that initially when I saw it, I thought it was okay, but after rewatching it, and I've rewatched it probably six or seven times since then, is My Soul to Take. I think it's a it was an awesome film to come out when it did in 2010, uh, and the fact that Wes was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, obviously in his 60s at that point... Um, it, to think that he put something out that was another original idea, you know, all these kids have the same birthday, and, you know, there was a mass murderer uh, that was on the loose the night all these kids were born. Like, you know what I mean? It's such a unique idea.
1: Yeah, I honestly, I'll be the first one to admit um, that when I first saw it, I saw it in theaters, I thought it was a piece of shit. To be totally honest, and I think a big part of that was because Craven did not shoot that film in 3D, from my understanding. But what they did in pro- post production is they went in and, and they they made it 3D. Yeah. So when I watched it in theaters, it was herky and jerky, and I found it very distracting. It was like it wasn't one of those 3D experiences that was really immersive. To me, it was just a distraction. It just it was very annoying. And then come to find out later, oh, well, that's why. Because this wasn't intended to be seen in 3D. So I hated it when I watched it in theaters. I had no intention of ever watching it again. But then rediscovered it on home video, you know, DVD or whatnot at the po- at that time, or Blu-ray. And just fell in love with it. And I, I, I think it is incredibly well done. I think uh, it is it is scary. I think it's funny. I love Max Thoreau's uh, bug character and obviously he went on and you know it was did
0: bates motel bates motel and um
1: but i think that's a really really good underrated film and so you know i urge anybody who saw it initially and thought like i did that it was kind of shitty to you know give it another chance because it it really is great
0: yeah and uh yeah it's a lot of fun and uh it's definitely, uh, definitely underappreciated. So hopefully, in time, it'll become more appreciated. But to uh, to wrap up our West's discussion, uh, I'd like to just uh, end with the the Scream series. You know, we're talking '96 when the first one came out. What a what a, a juggernaut Scream became. Obviously, one one of the most recognizable uh, characters in Ghostface that that ghost face mask still sells everywhere you see it every in every store every last week in september when they put the halloween stuff out and it really reinvigorated and i know a lot of people have always said this it really reinvigorated the the horror genre and to think that you can come and you can come and do all these movies in between you know 96 and you know 72 when he did uh, last house on the left you think last house on the left hills have eyes uh shocker and and people under the stairs and then you can come back and you can create another franchise that is completely with the times it's it's so ingrained in the 90s like uh teen culture and for it to come and be as is potent as it is and still re- and still hold up to this day is almost to uh, a two-hour film in the original and then spawning uh several sequels that are all uh pretty decent and and in their own right and some of them are even more than decent but the original scream is such an, an amazing concept and an amazing film and such a and kevin williamson's writing such an homage and a love letter to fa- to fans of the genre
1: yeah, I agree 100%. That is a film that, uh, again, redefined the genre after New Nightmare. You've got this young, hot horror writer. You know, he's, he's young,
0: young, hot cast, too. Think about all the young, hot cast in this movie.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's sort of, you know, you'd have to imagine it. it really launched the careers of pretty much every single person in there. Even people we don't necessarily... A tribute to Scream, um, like Liv Schreiber. You know, it's you yeah. Know, we all think of uh, Skeet Ulrich, and we think of Matthew Lillard, and Jamie Kennedy, and um,
0: Rose McGowan.
1: Rose McGowan, and Nev Campbell. You, you know, you think of all those people, but you know, Liv Schreiber is arguably the biggest A-list actor in the whole bunch. He uh, he really benefited from the first two, you know, Scream franchises, or, the, or excuse me, the first two Scream films. Obviously, so,
0: going on to do Ray Donovan, which is a huge success for Showtime.
1: Absolutely, it's that film again was so new and so fresh, and really, um, really just took the genre in a different direction. It was still very scary. Ghostface was horrifying. Peter, um, not Peter, uh, you know the, the gentleman Jackson's his last
0: name. Roger of, Jackson. Like,
1: Roger Jackson, who voiced Ghostface, talk about the absolute, I can't imagine any other voice ever being, you know, being Ghostface. It's freaking terrifying. Everything just came together perfectly. Having that, you know, finding that mask while Craven was out scouting, you know, having that young cast, just having Kevin Williamson, this really smart, satirical, self-aware writing this script uh, you know and then he goes on and does freaking dawson's creek he was very much on the pulse of young people in the 90s and it was very believable it seemed very authentic and again so you've got this this film that is funny you know you've got the, co- the comedic element with jamie kennedy um and dewey you know you you look at what that did for david arquette's career and and you know courtney cox obviously was huge anyway screen or excuse me with um friends but you know you have the comedic side but then you have the very serious side um ghostface butchering people and 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 it's just it's just an awesome freaking awesome awesome story
0: and you know it's one of those classic mysteries too who's the killer very clue-esque
1: it, absolutely, and that's and and that's where it sort of, as as new as it was, it harkened back to the good old days, the golden age of horror, where it was the whodunits. You know, yeah, they, it
0: was that, very Hitchcockian in that sense.
1: Yeah, it was it was a big episode of freaking Scooby Doo in a lot of ways, where it's like a false reveal. Oh, no, it's not him, you know. It's it's him, and you know Skeet Ulrich's getting stabbed. Oh, I thought it was the boyfriend. It's not him. Oh shit, it is him. You know, it's that. That's become a beloved part of the entire Scream series is just who the hell did it. You know what I mean? Who's yeah.
0: responsible? And I remember I remember in the fall of ninety seven getting the VHS, having uh my mother go and pick it up at like Eckerd's or wherever the fuck it was. Um, pick it up and bring it home and like I was like, Oh fuck. I was like, This looks good and watching that first scene with Drew Barrymore and her get that sets the tone for the whole you know the not even just the whole movie but the whole franchise it, it really just encapsulated everything obviously paying tribute to halloween and you know talking about john carpenter and, you, you know the, you know you talk about halloween and friday the 13th and you know uh you know all the the classic ones that you know the williamson wanted to pay tribute to all those great director so it was just such a it was geared right up our alley especially at such a young age being horror fans
1: yeah it's, it's a brilliant film i think to be able to say if you're west craven that you created you were directly responsible um you know and i know kevin williamson obviously wrote scream but yeah you know, to to say that hey i directed i i, I was the originator of two of the most timeless horror franchises of all time. I think in another 50 years, Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream will both continue to be talked about and and possibly way beyond that point. And to say, you know, to be Wes Craven and say, Hey, I'm responsible for both. um, I don't think, I don't think there's, there's much of an argument there. It's like, wow, that talk about one of the greatest of all time.
0: Yeah, And then when you get, Obviously, Scream Two. Uh, I love Scream Two. I think it's great. And I remember when that one came out, I was just like, I, I kind of like was like, oh shit, we're gonna get like new Scream movies all the time now. In which, you know, uh, a couple years later, we did get Scream Three. Um, Scream Three, I think, being the weakest of the three, even though they were a little more like they tried to be a little more self-aware on Scream Three. Um, what are your thoughts on Scream Two and Three, though? Uh,
1: Scream Two is great. I, I like...
0: Billy's mother! <laughs> Didn't see it coming, did you? <laughs> um,
1: yeah, no, I think that one's great. And I think um, people thought, uh, well, they did the dual killer in the first one, they're not going to do it again, and bam, they did it again, you know? Um, I thought that Jerry O'Connell's character really added a lot to to that that second installment. I think her her best, you know, uh, Nev Campbell's best friend there was great. I think it has one of the best, scariest scenes in the entire franchise where the cops are leading them away and they end up, you know, getting uh, into that car wreck and the the cop gets impaled and, you know, they have to sort of crawl over uh, Ghost face to get out of the vehicle. Yeah. The car, you know, the detective car. It's like, that was so suspenseful. That was genuinely uh, such a scary scene. I love the second one. The whole campus atmosphere really harkened back to the old slashers of the 80s. You know, the freaking Slaughter High, Splatter University. I love that, um, you know, final exam. I love that sort of uh, campus setting. I thought that one was great. I think the reveal was great. The third one, you know, I'm really not a fan of. I think it really hurt the continuity of the franchise. Kevin Williamson wasn't really a part of the third one. Um, It's hard. I don't think it has anything to do with Wes's direction, but it just, it got way too hokey for me. That fucking bodyguard calling, you know, David Arcot do drop, you know, that really killed it for me. I was like, this you know, this is is stupid. Um, That really, to me, that sucked. But you know what? I'm so glad for Wes and his, not like it would have hurt his legacy at all but I'm so grateful that he was able to redeem that franchise come back with the fourth one which to is, me is, 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 was phenomenal
0: yeah now how would you rank him? because I rank him 1, 4, 2, 3
1: that's exactly how I rank him, yeah
0: and the fourth yep. one I remember going to see this in theaters and being so fucking amped up And it delivered, it delivered, um, such a great, again, uh, Williamson and Craven, uh, dynamic duo coming together with a great young cast, an amazing concept, uh, fully ingrained in the social media, uh, like life of what's going on in 2011 at the time, um, and it really just killed it. It was just so fucking good. It's so fun. Kept you on the edge of your seat. You were still, you know, it was a classic mystery story. Again, you were still guessing. You didn't know who the killers were, what their motives were, who was it involved, who wasn't. Like, it, you know, is Lee Shriver finally, like, is he finally blew a gasket? Is he involved with it? Like, you know, is, is it Sydney? Did she fucking finally lose her last marble? Is she going nuts? And uh, it was just... Uh, it, Self, it was self-aware. It was super smart, as Williamson and, and Craven always have been with everything that they've done together and separate.
1: Yeah, that that was, I think, a very you know some people have mixed thoughts. I, I think it's great. Um, I think it's probably one of the best fourth entries in any horror franchise. I think it's 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 incredibly fresh. For being the fourth installment, and I think it was a very fitting way. Obviously, we both wish that Craven had gone on to, to to do even more; that his career would have lasted even longer. But considering his, his health issues, I think it was a very fitting way to end his career. It was a blockbuster. It, you know, it was critically received. You know, by by us fans, it, it did phenomenally monetarily, and uh, I just think it was a good a good way for Wes. If that was going to be the last film Wes makes. Uh, made. I was grateful that, you know, it wasn't The Ward or, you know, it wasn't freaking gin, you know, like with Hooper or whatever. I'm glad that it was something. I was like, wow, this is a great film.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Uh, it was perfect. Like you said, it was a perfect way to end it. But uh, I do want to, uh, what are your thoughts, you know, now that we're kind of coming, coming to a close uh, on on just talking about Wes and Wes's career and the impact he's, he's made on us. What were your thoughts when you heard that Wes passed away?
1: Yeah, I remember that being, um, being very devastating. I remember it, it really affected our entire group. And I think a big reason for that is for us, it was so unexpected. Um, yeah. Wes, you know, he, he was an older dude. Um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a spring chicken, but at the same time we, you know, we'd see him occasionally until these most recent scream commentaries where he did look really rough. I didn't even discover those until, you know, after the fact, the people under the stairs or whatnot, the interviews he gave where it's like, shit, he's not looking good. But I just remember it coming as a huge surprise. I had no idea that Wes, um, Wes had been sick. Um, and, and again, that's sort of a testament to who he was as a human being, that he wasn't. He, wasn't, he didn't want a pity party, he didn't want people feeling sorry for him, he didn't even tell people he had brain cancer, it just sort of just faded away, and it was just tragic. Um, and I think we all were surprised too, because we would see, you know, George out and about, and we'd see, um, you know, Carp out and about, and those guys are freaking sucking down a pack full of cigarettes a minute, and somehow they outlived Craven, it was like, what the hell, you know, I just don't think, it, it was very unexpected.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, when I heard about Toby over the summer, I remember being like, oh, shit, Jesus, and George had just passed, and, and George, the George one was particularly rough just because we had all met him on several occasions, and he'd always just seemed so, like, nice and gracious to all of his fans, and he was just kind of like a, a mainstay at the convention circuit um, as well and stuff, so... uh I mean, the George one was really hard, especially just because, you know, you you grow up with these guys and their art and everything, and and, and just getting a chance to just shake a hand and say thank you, uh, it particularly hurts a little more when these guys pass on, but, you know, Wes you know, there was always hope that West would roll through town doing something, promoting a movie, because I only, I know he only really did at the convention circuit, or any kind of convention, or meeting, signing things when he did a film, and I think because he was probably, like, uh, he was probably just shy and embarrassed, like, to, you know, for people to friggin' just fall on their knees and friggin' do the we're not worthy fucking chant thing to him, um... He just seemed like a very private guy, and even, obviously, towards the end of his life, he obviously didn't promote any kind of illness that he had, and he kept it to himself. I mean, he was posting on his Instagram days before he died, which is shocking. Um, posting that his cat Yeah. Gave him- and uh you know but when uh, for some reason i remember it being uh, obviously the next day was i think brian's birthday and we were all hanging out and no one would really we we were just all out of it it just seems so weird because you never meet the guy you don't hang out with him you're not fucking you're not having coffee with him you're not fucking you can't count how many fucking the, you know uh moles he had on his face or whatever because you never fucking sat down and had a goddamn cup of joe with the guy but you know it, it did affect our uh our little uh core group when we were hanging yeah, out and the that, day after yeah, and, that,
1: and, and that's the power of film i feel like not to sound cheesy but you know to, to have never met these people um but for them to have affected your your life so profoundly to have um to this day they still they still impact our our lives we still watch wes's films just like we watch george's films and toby's films and like we'll still watch carp's films for years to come you know there, there's not going to be a part of our I, I can't anticipate imagine any time in any of our lives where we'll not be watching these films um exactly you know i feel like that's sort of ingrained in us it's a part of who we are so yeah you do feel um just a genuine love and gratitude for these filmmakers because of all the memories they've, they've created for you and for us. And, you know, they brought us together as friends and, you know, it it made my childhood so special, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise in particular. Um, And just having this, this, this gratitude and this, this passion, um, it, it definitely hurts when they pass away even if like you said you, you you weren't particularly friends with them but in some ways you still feel like you knew these people because of the amount of themselves they put into their films so it does feel like losing a friend in some ways
0: yeah now i guess to to leave it uh tell uh, tell the audience a story about the uh the ex, the stationary pad uh, note that you got written to you from Wes. Uh, then, kind of how that all came to fruition, like uh, you contacting Wes. Obviously, none of us meeting him, but you actually uh, getting, a, I believe, uh, like a fan mail address, or, or or what was it, John? What what what?
1: I I don't. I, I think you know Craven towards the end of his career. Um, him and his wife had their own production company that sort of. Um, Behind the scenes were responsible for his films. And I just remember writing, you know, stumbling across that address and writing Wes a letter, not really expecting to ever hear back from him. Um, But just just telling him a lot of the things that I've I've shared with you and your listeners here about how much of an impact his his films had on me and my upbringing and, and, and how nostalgic I am for for those times and and how much i reminisce about the days where you know i'd go down to that mom and pop video rental store with my grandparents and rent these movies and you know they would allow me to watch them and they'd always be skeptical this is too violent you know but they would allow me to do it just because you know i was behaved and and that was my the my my reward that was the one concession they made what let allow me to watch these r-rated films and i remember just just sending him a heartfelt letter and and just telling him, you know, thank you f- for that because I know, um, a lot of times this, the movie making business can, can be a thankless, a thankless job. You're only as good as your last movie. You know, people tend to forget all your previous contributions when you put out a bomb, you know, a turkey, you know, you, you put out a shitter and everyone's like, ah, you know, he's all washed up. He sucks, you know? So I think it was at a time where, um, in his in his life you know this was you know several years before he passed away i think but it must have just resonated with him and you know sure as sure enough i received a a package back in the mail from him and um you know he had sent me a few signed things a nightmare on elm street something or other and um you know uh something from scream which obviously i still have and i i still have the note that he wrote me on his hand wrote on his his West Craven. It said a note from West Craven. It was like his his home stationery, and and just wrote me a note and just expressed his, his his appreciation for taking for me taking the time to write to him. And he said, actually, you know, I have a um, a good a good friend of mine who's raising her grandchildren right now, and I thought your letter was powerful enough that I made a copy of it and shared it with her to sort of motivate her that it is worthwhile to. To, to do these things, and there is a lasting impact on the kids. And, you know, I just thought that that was really cool. Somebody who who, who by no means had to write me, take the time out of his day, did. And um, I think that, that that's just a statement on who Wes Craven was. You know, he wasn't about the money necessarily. He was, he was just somebody who really genuinely appreciated the process and appreciated his fans. And to me, that's, of all the things I own, you know, all these movie props and memorabilia and autographs to me that handwritten note from Wes Craven's the uh, most important thing i have in my entire collection it's something i treasure
0: well and that's something he's you know what a what a a testament to the kind of person he still remained even in his uh, even in his twilight years when he said you know i i framed the the note that you wrote because i want to express to her you know how pivotal the you know showing young kids these films are in the kind of character building and like formation it really does you know have in creating you know memories and this, you know creating those moments that are going to become nostalgia uh you know and uh you know i i often find myself watching you know whether it be uh whether it be the Last House on the Left or Nightmare on Elm Street or Shocker, and I almost I almost get lost in the films because I'm remembering the times when I first saw them or remembering people at this point, you know, who had who have passed on, who I remember watching it, uh, you know, with or or just uh, certain memories of my youth and finding these films, and I find myself, you know, kind of getting in a a thousand yard stare mode where I kind of kind of get lost in, you know. I gotta snap back into it and actually watch the film because I'm thinking about all this, like all this stuff, uh, you know, that's related and correlated to the, you know, the nostalgia of all the film filmmakers and the movies and everything. And uh, yeah, he's. He's sorely missed, for sure, and he's definitely, uh, talk about a guy that's made uh, an impact and just seemed, uh, as does Carpenter, as did Toby Hooper, as did uh, George Romero, all seemed very, very normal guys with normal aspirations and are all simply filmmakers who made memorable films.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice, it's refreshing to see people that are so um, are so humble and are still gracious even having achieved such levels of success and uh, Wes was one of the good ones and certainly is, is sorely missed and I don't think they'll ever be I think that's why we revered these guys as the big four is because I certainly don't see anybody in the modern horror field who can even come close to these guys, except for maybe a James Wan, you know, with Insidious and Conjuring and Saw. I think outside of James Wan, I'm not saying that horror seems bleak by any means, because you definitely see some great films every year coming out. It this year was, was huge, the biggest horror film of all time, from my understanding, box office wise. But I just don't, I don't see any more Cravens coming out of the new crop of filmmakers. I don't see any uh more carpenters or uh you know george romero's or toby hooper's so um you know in that sense i think their films will last forever because you just there's nobody could replicate what they've achieved
0: yeah definitely well i mean there's not much more to say we've uh we've said it all about west but i'm sure we could go on another two hours but john thanks for uh thanks for taking the time to kind of talk west i know uh I know you and I will continue to talk Wes, as, as we have before this podcast uh, as well. So, you know, his memory is living on right now. We just dedicated two hours of our lives uh, to kind of just discussing him. So uh, if there's any testament to the kind of person you are for two guys to sit here and talk about you after you've been dead for uh, over two years, uh, you know, that's obviously you have a lasting impact.
1: Oh, for sure. And it's, uh, it's always a pleasure um, I love talking uh film with you and your listeners and uh obviously Wes uh being one of the best examples of a of a true filmmaker. So thanks again for having me on.
0: Hey, of course, brother. Thank you again.
1: All right, have a good night. You too, man. Bye-bye.
0: Yeah, so that is uh that this is the end of this episode i want to thank everyone for listening and uh another two hour spectacle this one obviously at this point uh we're just awaiting our uh, john carpenter episode which will be up soon uh and then we'll, we will have covered the uh the big four man uh what an accomplishment to get this all these guys in i hope uh everyone uh is gonna enjoy what we got in store the john carpenter episode coming up uh soon after this one, uh, should be posted the same day, uh, which is Sunday, um, and, uh, also, we have a wrestling special on Bret Hart, uh, because we're just mixing it up, uh, we got some wrestling fans, um, and, uh, yeah, what better time to cover Bret Hart than, uh, you know, the November Survivor Series month, uh, which was last Sunday, um, but, I want to thank everyone for listening. We are at Heart God Media on Twitter and uh, on Instagram. Um, feel free to follow. Uh, iTunes and Heart God, you can listen to the podcast. Um rate, review, subscribe. Uh yeah, send me uh send me likes, send me PM, send me DMs, send me ads and uh yeah, I want to thank everyone. And what a what an imprint Wes has left and uh i'm gonna kind of leave everyone with a, a little clip of Wes just talking about being a filmmaker because he was simply that uh uh a filmmaker and uh a, a damn good one and uh someone who's gonna be uh remembered and uh missed uh, forever uh, but thanks for stopping by thanks for listening thanks for supporting and i hope everyone enjoys this this episode and uh long live west craven
2: well, yeah, I have a very sort of ambivalent view of myself as um, as an artist or as a filmmaker. I mean, somebody once, when I was first starting in films in New York, says, if you want something on your gravestone in, your, in the film business, I think the best thing is filmmaker. If you can honestly say that, that's all you need to say. And that's, uh, that, I think, would I would like that on my gravestone, along with whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Um, Beyond that, I, I don't think it's possible to, or, or advisable, or even smart to call yourself an artist or talk about yourself as an artist. I mean, uh, first of all, the, the, it's a business, and uh, to forget that or ignore it or act like it's not there is is just idiotic. Um, and secondly, it's 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 very difficult to know what will later be judged as art. I, I guess what I've tried to do is I've tried to make movies where I can honestly say I haven't seen that before and to follow um, my deepest intuitions and uh, in some cases literally my dreams um, so that I don't feel like I'm copying something that's come before me and uh, to try to do things that uh, you know speak to sort of the, the areas outside the fences, you know, to where the wild animals are are still. Because I, it seems to me that the things that move us historically, both personally and nationally, are those things, those things that aren't on the grid of rationality. It, it's funny, because, you know, having traveled now in a lot of third world countries, and I just came back from Africa, it's like you see that, Every civilization has its own grid of what it thinks reality is and what uh, is proper behavior and uh, what is civilized. And usually what happens is that sooner or later that grid is shattered and, uh, you know, something like World War II happens or you wipe out the Native American population or, you know, Spain invades South America and decimates virtually every living creature there and takes over. Yeah, and then suddenly it's, the grid is back, and we're civilized, and we're religious, and we're this and that. But um, there seems to be a deeper grid that I've tried to find, and that is how, how the engine of life really works. And I think it, it works a lot off of violence, like it or not, and it works off a lot off of um, things that are not rational and very difficult to perceive and in some ways can only be sort of a a, a sort of sketched and shadow played in in films and in uh, horror films and it's not something i'm terribly happy about i wish i wish the world did run so there weren't uh, bosnias and there weren't uh, rondas and there weren't uh, selmas and but it that seems to be the way it goes about its business at significant times and uh to try to capture that in symbols on film, and uh, to sometimes succeed, I think, is uh, is very exciting and gratifying. Beyond that, I have no idea whether anything I've done is of any significance or not. You know, it's like uh, it's like the end of Casablanca in a way. You know, we, probably most of what we do doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Um, but it's been fun. It's been fun to be in the uh, in the business and to survive. It's been fun to sit in the back of audiences and watch them scream and jump and laugh. Um, it's always gratifying to see how smart the audiences are because quite often my audiences are the outcasts you know the kids with the long hair and and blacks and Hispanics and uh, people that society thinks you know uh, discounts and they're quite often the, the absolute quickest to grasp what I'm doing much faster than the civilized critics and people that supposedly are supposed to have heads on their shoulders so that's a good that's a good sign for civilization I think ultimately the great civilization which is whatever will allow us to survive is that uh, you know in the streets in the uh, theaters of the most popular movies are very very smart people um, smart kids and uh, that's encouraging